Hi, this is Jamil. If you're listening to this, you probably aren't satisfied with the way peace and conflict are covered in the media. I started the War Stories, Peace Stories project as a global initiative to bring journalists and peace builders together to help reimagine the way the news media covers peace and conflict. I felt that it's imperative that we learn about peace, how to build it and sustain it, and that reaching journalists was a great place to start. With this podcast, our new journal, Nuance, and our Peace Doc film series, we celebrate journalism that looks at conflict differently, that doesn't fan the flames, that demonstrates that there are alternatives to war and violence. Building peace and sustaining peace may seem like an impossibility, especially now when there's so much war and violence in the news. The problem is that if we see peace as impossible, it will remain impossible. Help us reshape the narrative on peace and conflict. Please make a tax-deductible donation today. Go to our website, warstoriespeacestories.org, and click the Donate button on the top right of the page. We've also got a link in the show notes to this episode. Your donation is key to helping us sustain this work. We thank you very much. Welcome to Making Peace Visible, the podcast about peace, conflict, and the media. I'm your host, Jamil Simon. In today's world, we often think about peace and democracy as coexisting conditions for a healthy society. Yet prior to the 1900s, democracy was a rare phenomenon. And most of the people on this planet had no say in their government. After World War II, former colonies around the world became independent and established democratic governance structures. At the same time, political analysts noticed a troubling trend. Civil wars were breaking out in many of those same countries. So is there something about democracy or democratization that leads to violence? To answer that question, we're featuring an interview from our colleagues at Democracy Works. Democracy Works is a podcast about what it means to live in a democracy from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. In this conversation, host Jenna Spinelli speaks with political scientist Barbara F. Walter about her recent book, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. Seems like something worth reading as we approach the next election. As Walter explains, civil wars are most likely to happen not in autocracies nor in fully functional democracies, but in countries that are somewhere in between. That includes places on the way to becoming more democratic, but also democracies in decline, like Hungary under Orban, India under Modi, or the United States under Trump. And Walter says when a country is polarized along ethnic lines rather than ideology, violence is even more likely. The interview was originally published in April 2023. To learn more about Democracy Works, visit democracyworkspodcast.com. Here's Barbara F. Walter, author of How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them, in conversation with Jenna Spinelli. Barbara Walter, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here, Jenna. So I learned so much from reading your book and your other work, so lots to get to today. I want to maybe start with some historical background and context I think will help set the stage for thinking about civil wars. You talk about, in your book, the love affair with democracy that went from Mm -hmm. World War II through the Iraq War, Mm -hmm. roughly. So I, I wonder if you could 
say more about that period and maybe how it informs the way that we think about civil wars today? So there's this interesting correlation that most people don't know about. And it's a correlation between the rise of democracy and the rise of civil wars. If you look back into, you know, pre-1900s, democracy was actually a very rare form of government. People generally didn't rule themselves throughout history. That began to change, especially after World War II. Countries were getting richer. Citizens were demanding more rights and freedoms, and they wanted to have a say in ruling themselves. And so as states became independent, that's what form of government they tended to want as they began to reform. That's what they were moving towards. And as this was happening, you started to see more and more civil wars break out. So that got people thinking, is there something that's related to democratization or democracy per se that's leading to violence? And it turns out not really, but maybe something. And it turns out that civil wars rarely happen in, almost never happen in full and healthy democracies. So think about the Denmarks and the Canadas and the Switzerlands of the world. They also rarely happen in full autocracies. So think about the North Koreas, the Saudi Arabias, the Bahrains. They happen in the middle. And we call those types of governments anocracies. Yeah, which was a new term. For yeah. Me. I hadn't heard that before reading your book. It's funny. Just before the book came out, I sent it around to some of my friends who were Civil War experts, had them read it. And one of the most famous professors, he's at Stanford, he said, you know, he's like, you know, Barb, I agree with everything, but nothing's new. You know, we've known about anocracy for 30 years, for 30 years. And I was like, yeah, we, the handful of maybe... <laughs> You know, 30 civil war experts, but the rest of the world doesn't know about this relationship. And so one of the things that we've been trying to figure out is that what is it about anocracies that make them particularly violent prone? We don't really know, but we have a very strong hunch. Yeah. And can you tell us what an anocracy oh. is for listeners <laughs> for whom that term might also be? Yeah. So an anocracy is just a fancy political science term for a partial democracy. It's a government that's neither fully democratic nor fully autocratic. It's something in between. So if you think about a country where they hold elections— and those elections can be free and fair. The citizens of that country go out to vote. They're very enthusiastic about voting. Think about Hungary. This is what happens in Hungary. But whoever is elected basically has very, very few constraints on what he or she can do. Orban basically rules the way he wants to in Hungary. The opposition tries to depose him. They are never successful. And in part because he controls the state media, he basically fixes the system so that no other party can be competitive. That's an anocracy. Yeah, and has, has made inroads to universities yes. as well and all those kinds of things. And so you also, you highlight the work that this scholarly community has done to quantify all of this. Yeah. A, I believe it's a 20-point scale, if I do my math correctly, the polity score. Can yeah. you tell us what that is and how that maps on to those categories you were yeah. describing? Yeah. So there are numerous really high-quality data sets that include 
everything you'd ever want to know about civil wars. Who starts them, when they start, how long they last, whether they end in negotiated settlements, what are they fighting over. So we have all of this really rich data at our fingertips. One of the measures that people use when they look to see whether a country is an anocracy or not is a data set called the Polity 5 data set. It comes out of a nonprofit located in Virginia called the Center for Systemic Peace. It has a website. All of all of these data are publicly available. You can go Google it. You can download it. You could use it. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool how much information we have. Every year, the people at Polity analyze every single country around the world, and they assign that country a score between negative 10 and positive 10. And negative 10 means that it is the most autocratic type of government, positive 10, the most democratic type of government. But you could be a negative 8, you could be a 5, you could be a positive 8. And that way they can see and we, any the public can see what direction countries are going. Are they, are they stable at a 10? Are they sliding down the scale? So is their democracy becoming weaker? Is their democracy becoming stronger? So it's very informative. Yeah. And I know some of our listeners are very kind of invested in the democracy space, whether as as academics or maybe work for democracy-focused organizations. So I'm going to ask you a bit of a nerd question. So that polity score, like how does that track with reports that Freedom House and VDEM, like are all of these things roughly trending in the same direction or are there disparities between them? And if so, how important? important are those disparities? Yeah, there's at least four or five major data sets on democracy. And your listeners might ask, well, why would we need that many? And we do need that many because each one of them measures democracy slightly differently. And they measure it based on what features of democracy they're most interested in. One of the data sets, so let me name them. The polity I just talked about, you talked about Freedom House, you talked about VDEM, which stands for Varieties of Democracy. That's housed in Sweden. There's the Economist Intelligence Unit, which is done by the magazine The Economist. Ooh, and there's maybe a fifth one that I'm not remembering right now. But those are really the four big ones. Your listeners probably hear most about Freedom House. Journalists like to go to Freedom House and talk about, you know, if they've suddenly mentioned, oh, the United States has dropped on the Freedom House ranking. Freedom House is interested in a very, very particular, very particular elements of democracy. It cares about individual rights and freedoms, period. It wants to know how strong freedom of the press is in a country, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. That's what it focuses on. Polity doesn't include any measures of freedom of the press and freedom of religion and things like that. It's not interested in that element of democracy. It's interested instead on the democratic institutions, how strong are those democratic institutions, and it's particularly interested in the democratic institutions that constrain and restrain executive power. So in some ways, one way to think about this is when the founding fathers formed America's democracy, one of the things they were most worried about was that a king would emerge 
here in the United States. Many of them had left England because of the oppressiveness of the monarchy, and they wanted to make sure that didn't happen. If that were to happen in the United States, it was most likely to come out of the White House, and it would be the president basically grabbing power and making himself king. So they thought a lot about how to put in place checks and balances, institutional constraints that would make that very hard to do. That's what polity focuses on. Varieties of democracy, they do what they say they do. They're like, you know what? No democracy is the same. Denmark, Switzerland, Canada, the United States, Australia, each has its unique form of democracy. And they were interested in whether a particular type of democracy was better on a host of different outcomes. So was a particular type of democracy more peaceful, more prosperous, more fair towards its citizens? And so it went even deeper into looking at the nuances of different types of democracy. So that's probably more nerdy and in no, the weeds than you no, wanted. We, um, our show has been called Jarringly Academic. So oh, thank yeah, you there for, we go. Uh, I can do that. So, <laughs> um, so re- returning back to the Civil War, so how do you map that polity data on to, you know, how you assess the notion of, of Civil War and you know, how likely it is or is not to happen in a place? So... In the book, one of the things that I present are the results of a number of quantitative studies. I basic, and I, I don't talk about it that way, but I basically say, here's what we know from 30 years of high quality academic studies on this subject. And one of the most robust findings from the quantitative literature is that anocracies are at higher risk of civil war than other types of governments. That comes probably, you know, somebody to look up is a fantastic scholar. He's at the University of Essex. His name is Christian Gledich. He's done a lot of this, the heavy lifting on anocracy. But there are others as well. And they basically were looking at studies that explain the outbreak of we call it armed conflict, armed conflict. And you start with theories and you think, okay, what are all the possible factors that could lead a country towards civil war? Is it poverty? Is it income inequality? Is it how ethnically and religiously heterogeneous a country is? Is it the type of government that's in power? And you then include in your model variables on that get at these concepts. And so if you think it's the type of government that's in power, the way people started was, well, we'll just throw in a variable. Is the government democratic? That's really, really rough because we know there are lots of different types of democracy. Well, and then they said, well, we have this measure of anocracy. Is it an anocracy? And the very early studies that use these rough measures found that again and again and again, anocracy kept coming up. And so that's how we found out. Then one of the things that happened in 2017 was I was asked to join this task force run by the U.S. government called the Political Instability Task Force. One of the jobs of the task force is to come up with a predictive model to help our government predict what countries around the world are going to potentially experience ethnic conflict and civil war. And that task force was made up of experts on civil war and conflict and data analysts. And the data analysts were in charge of creating this predictive model. And they also began to look at all of these different variables. They played with the data. They're trying to figure out, okay, what set of variables 
best predict civil war. And they found that, in fact, only two were highly predictive, right? They also found democracy was the most important one. So that's how we began to see that there's something going on here. So let me circle back to your very first question, this seeming correlation Mm -hmm. between the rise of democracy and the rise of civil war. Democratization is not bad, right? We now live in a world where almost 60% of countries are democracies, and we know that people who live in democracies on almost every measure live a higher quality of life. This is a very good thing. But what we now understand that when you go from an authoritarian regime to a democratic regime, you don't go directly from one to the other. It's a slow, progressive process, and you almost always go through this middle zone. So what was happening in, you know, after World War II, as the number of countries were democratizing, we were seeing more and more countries become anocracies for a period of time, and that's where the instability and violence tends to occur. Right. And it also happens in reverse, right? We saw countries that were more stable democracies like the U.S. and Hungary and some of the other places. And Ukraine. Ukraine, yeah. I want to... I'm coming back to that, but it, there's also this like democratic decay that happens yeah. too, where people, where countries go the other way. And I think that yes. you argue that the U.S. and other places are sort of in the other part of that anocracy, like on the way down, not on the way up. Yes. So that's a relatively n- new phenomenon. The number of democracies around the world were increasing fairly consistently until about 2010. 2010 was peak democracy in the world. Since 2010, the number of democracies around the world has been declining almost every year. That's troubling. It's even more troubling because the declines are also happening in the most, the oldest, the most um, stalwart democracies, the democracies we never thought would see decline. The UK has declined, for example. If you look at the measures by the variety of of democracy data set, every single democracy of Western Europe has declined over the last 10 years. And the United States, of course, is also has also been declining. That's really troubling. And so we know what happens when you democratize and you go into become an anocracy. We've watched lots and lots of countries experiencing that. We're now only beginning to see what happens case by case when you're coming from the other direction. Yeah. And the other, another interesting point, not the other, you make many interesting points about what's going on. But so you also talk about, you know, America as the first democracy, the first kind of Western democracy that will have at some point down the line, a majority non-white population. And you alluded to earlier the kind of tensions that arise and how conflicts between ethnic groups lead to civil war. So how are you thinking about that aspect of things in this kind of America's state as an anocracy? Like how might the eventual shift to a non-white majority impact that? Yeah, I'm going to try to answer that in two parts. So I talked about how the model our government uses had two factors that were highly predictive of civil wars. The first was anocracy. The second was whether citizens in countries that are anocracies had organized themselves into political parties based on identity rather than ideology. So rather than joining a political party because you're a conservative or a liberal, communist or a capitalist, you're joining a political party because you're black or white, Muslim or Christian. Serb or Croat. 
if a country had these two features, so its government was an anocracy and it had these very strong racially, ethnically, or religiously based parties, the task force considered it at high risk of civil war or ethnic conflict, and it put it on a watch list. Okay, so we know those two features. The second important point to make is that we actually know who tends to start civil wars, and it's not the people who most of us think. It's not the poorest or the weakest groups. It's actually the groups that had once been politically dominant and are in decline. Now, that's sort of background to answering your question, which is this demographic transition that the United States is facing. The group that's in that had been politically dominant in this country and is in decline are white, predominantly male, predominantly Christians. The United States from our inception has been dominated by that demographic. And they have been losing status. Their status was extremely high. It was privileged compared to everybody else. But they perceive it as if they are, in fact, in decline. So if you think back to January 6th and you, if you remember videos from that day, The people who stormed the U.S. Capitol, they walked down the mall. They were not trying to hide. They didn't have masks on. They were taking videotapes. Uh, They were videotaping themselves with their phones. They believed they were patriots, that they were doing the right thing, and that it was their duty, actually, to take back their country. That is the the kind of the perfect visual of the types of groups who feel justified in turning to violence— If they're losing power, the demographic change, the U.S. is in the midst of this great transformation where we're going to go from a country whose um, population is majority white to a country whose population is majority non-white. This is going to happen around 2045. We are the first country, white majority country to go through this, but the other ones are likely to follow. Canada is probably going to be next, followed by New Zealand and eventually the countries of Western Europe. That's especially likely to be true with climate change because climate change is going to disproportionately affect the countries of the global south. People who live in those countries who are going to now be experiencing droughts and extreme weather are going to do what any of us would do is we're going to pack up and they're going to move someplace more hospitable. And many of them are going to move to the wealthier democratic countries of the north. So that's the big transformation. And groups like the Proud Boys, white supremacist groups, of which there are an increasing number in the United States, find this deeply, deeply threatening. And they feel that it is their responsibility to try to stop it. So again, if you remember scenes from the Charlottesville rally, when you had all of those young white men holding torches and coming together, one of their chants was, we will not be replaced, we will not be replaced. And that is a direct reference to the changing demographics in the United States. And it directly reveals their sense of threat and their sense of loss and their sense of resentment. I wonder if you could talk about the difference between polarization and factualization. I think that the terms are sometimes confused. People say one when they mean the other. Yeah. So they are absolutely not the same thing. You could have a United States that is highly polarized, which we were in the 1960s, and that does not put a country at higher risk of civil war. Polarization refers to ideological 
divisions. So think about the 60s where you had, you know, people were really divided. And back then, you know, whites were heavily divided based on whether they were liberal or whether they were conservative, whether they were pro-Vietnam War, whether they were anti-Vietnam War. They were divided over the issues, whether you should be, you know, taxed and we should build a strong social safety net or whether you should have less regulation and lower taxes. So people are fighting over the issues. When you have an ethnically factionalized country, they are dividing themselves purely by their identity. So if you look today, the Democratic African-Americans, Latinos, Muslim Jews, atheists vote predominantly for the Democratic Party. If you look at the Republican Party, the Republican Party is almost 80 percent white and heavily Christian in a country that's multi-ethnic, mm-hmm. multi-religious, and multi-racial. So whites now, whites, there are about 40% of whites vote for the Democrat, I don't know exactly the number, but uh, vote for the Democratic Party. But you have a large percentage, for example, of the white working class that used to, for many years, voted solidly Democratic because the Democratic Party provided more social services for them and their economic policy was more beneficial. Starting in 2008, they've gravitated towards the Republican Party, even though the policies of the Republican Party, their economic policies, do not benefit those groups. If you think about the, you know, the state of Tennessee, that's rejecting federal aid for Medicaid. Right. Who are the beneficiaries of Medicaid? It's in Tennessee. It's, you know, one of the constituents for that is the white working class. Like, why would you support a party that's undercutting economic policies that benefit you? They're doing it because they're choosing their identity over their economic interests. So as we think about, you mentioned, you know, America is solidly an anocracy. We're also moving along through the six stages of extremism. Something We're not a solid anocracy Oh, we're not. Okay. Yeah, this is an important point. Okay. So we were officially classified as an anocracy in December of 2020. Uh That happened after the sitting president refused to accept the results of election and tried to overturn them. But when Trump did peacefully leave office and we had a new administration and that new administration has been honoring the rule of law and clearly supports democracy, our score was raised. We went from a positive five to a positive eight. We're not back at a positive 10. This happened after the after the book after the original out, yeah. book came out. So the the paperback's coming out oh. this month, and it will have updated data. And so we've kind of dodged a bullet. But a really important point to make is our democracy score improved not because any of our democratic institutions <laughs> were strengthened. Our institutions are as weak today as they were on January twenty first. There have been no reforms of the mm-hmm. system since Biden came into office. The only reason we're a little bit on steadier ground is because we have an individual who honors democracy. Boy, you know, that means that we're putting a lot of, you know, we're asking that individual to hold up democracy. And if somebody else is elected who doesn't want democracy, our system is still vulnerable to rapid backsliding. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And that actually gets to the kind of 
where we go from here. So there are, as, as you may know, there are lots of different ideas about reforms and paths forward. You write about some of them on the kind of cultural side, you know, the work of Eric Liu and Civic yeah. Saturdays and all those things. There's also myriad structural reform ideas out there, you know, getting rid of the Electoral College, increasing yeah. the size of the House, on, on and on. And so I guess I wonder, like, how you think about, like, the mix of those two things or, you know, I mean, we need all of it, right? But like everything can't be a priority at the same time. And so are there examples from other countries that are instructive here about does the structure come first and the culture or vice versa or, you know, how we kind of think about the order of these reforms? Yeah, I don't think at this point reform is going to come from the top down. Mm. The Democrats controlled all three branches of government in the first two years of Biden's administration. They were not able to push through a single reform. They simply don't have the votes. So that means that if there is going to be reform, it's going to have to happen from the bottom up. And by that, I mean, citizens have to demand it. How do citizens demand it? There, you know, the two big ways are first, they go out to vote. And second, if they still aren't getting a reaction from their politicians, you engage in peaceful protests. Let's talk about the vote, because I think that's where we are right now. America has low turnout relative to other democracies around the world. Think about, again, Tennessee. People think about Tennessee as a deep red state. Well, Tennessee is very conservative. It's always been conservative. It will always be conservative. We actually don't know, because if you look at the primary elections in Tennessee, the turnout of eligible voters is about 20%. That means that about 80% of eligible voters in states, I'm just using Tennessee as an example, are sitting on the sidelines. So what we know about Tennessee is that it's a non-voting state. So imagine a scenario where a majority of those people who haven't participated in our democracy suddenly do go out to vote. Imagine if young people age 18 to 25, who historically are the lowest voting group, they historically don't get involved, if they were suddenly to vote. We saw that in Wisconsin. I was going to ask you about that, yeah. If we suddenly saw a significantly higher percentage of the population voting and segments of the population, the younger generation in particular, whose preferences are quite different from the older generation, if their voice was suddenly heard, we would have a different makeup of people in Congress, in the House, in the Senate. That means suddenly we would almost certainly have a more moderate set of politicians in power and and they would have more incentives to work together to provide solutions that the median voter actually wants. And you might actually see change. So what happened in Wisconsin this week was really quite extraordinary. You saw the reaction of the younger generation to attempts to restrict abortion rights individual rights. They went out in droves and, you know, they elected somebody by an 11-point margin. This is in a state that usually the margin is, is, is one point or less. It was a huge turnout. And so I think we're starting to see some of the groundswell of citizens saying, enough, enough. The extremists should not be running the show. The extremists should not be dictating policies that a majority of Americans don't want. And we're going to do something about it. 
That is a great place to leave things. We'll link to your book in the show notes so people can get that new paperback edition and get the updated data. Thank you so much, Barbara. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Jenna. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kugler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.